Shakespeare, genius, groundbreaking icon, writer. But what if he had an equally talented sister? Would she have been given the same opportunities? Makes you wonder, doesn't it? What other genius has been lost to the world for the mere misfortune of being born female? Hello, and welcome to the Book Club Juxtapositions podcast, a book club where we discuss two pieces of literature and juxtapose them based on theme, plot, author style, societal norms, and basically just how the book grabs you. All of the interesting things that make for a great spoiler-filled book club discussion. Did you say spoiler-filled? Yes, I said spoiler-filled. This is an adult podcast intended for adult listeners, and we may use adult language. Adult language? What the hell? In this episode, we will examine Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, an extended essay, which argues that women need a physical and a metaphorical place in order to write and how oppression of these voices causes a contrast between feminine internal voices to their patriarchal external realities. I'm Tracy May, author, multi-award winning screenwriter, and former educator. I'm Kimberly Andy, creator of the blog Lily Heads of Curiosity, travel writer, and former educator. A Room of One's Own is an important feminist text that explores how gender roles create the lack of financial freedom and education that have pressed female writers. Creative impulse is strong. When faced with extinction, it can modify and evolve into an epic Darwinian struggle to survive. Virginia Woolf's work explores how the female narrative voice, when faced with the contrasting external reality, can hide but still thrive in the internal voice. This book, published in 1929, is most persuasive when taking the more intangible concepts like oppression of the female writer's voice for providing concrete examples of the systematic weapons used in such suppression. The most powerful of these weapons, a lack of financial freedom and access to education. But what if the oppression is such an ingrained idea in our culture that it becomes a norm? How do you fight against that? If we're looking at this, Is a societal norm an ingrained idea that male writers should just be taken more seriously even today? I think it is. I think that that's just something you think about the number of authors, women authors, that use a different name or they just use their initials so that their work isn't um, looked at differently or not taken as seriously because it might not be a boy topic. Air quotes. (laughs) (laughs) So like Charlotte Bronte, Louisa May Alcott... You know, they all had to take on synonyms to hide their gender identities. Yeah, J.K. Rowling. Even today, though, do you think that a female Shakespeare would break through? I hope so. I hope that we've reached a point today where a female Shakespeare would break through. I wasn't even thinking about all of these female writers today that still do the initials. Until we research that. Until you research it and you're like, that's just crazy. Yeah, that's messed up. Yeah. That's messed up. It's messed up that they have to do that in order to have some sort of popularity with what they're doing. Or just to hide who they are. Yeah. You know, you think about, you know, female writers, and then you think about female writers of color and how much harder that is for them. I mean, two steps forward, four steps back kind of a thing. Right. So isn't it really about money, though? Or is it a, or is it a fear of losing that male dominance? Virginia Woolf talks about the connection between anger and power. For patriarchy to survive, does it need both anger and power? And that connection to money, like does money buy you power? And then you're just really angry wanting to keep it. I don't know. I just, I kind of feel like it's, it's the money gives you freedom and freedom gives you the opportunity to write. Cause she talked about that, that she had received that money from her aunt, I think. And after she got that money from her aunt, the pressure was off. So she was able to 
write freely without the pressure of being able to to survive. Well, because I think that, you know, when I was reading that part, I was thinking about, all right, so during that time period, and luckily less so now, but during that time period, it was absolutely the man's job to be the breadwinner. And so it was almost expected, like, okay, you're a writer. That's what you're doing. You're going to go do this. And at the same time, I have to be home and do the laundry and do the dishes and cook the meals. But yet... There's, um, so that's where they, if they didn't have their own money to be able to then be the support system for the family or themselves, they weren't allowed to be able to say that that was their job. They had to still somehow support themselves. How incredibly frustrating would that have had to have been for so many people, especially you think about, you know, Little Women's out the movies now, so people are you know more in tune to understanding that. And then Emma is just now coming out to see that struggle that the women had, but then to also see them persevere. Yeah, it was a fictional story, but it was also, I think, highly historical fiction pull out that time period, so. To express that kind of frustration. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so like an outcome of that a kind of oppression influenced female writers where they have these themes, like living this internal life that contrasted with their external reality. So in externally, they were living in this prison of an idea of a male-dominated culture being the norm. So they, I wonder if that encouraged creativity then, if on the outside, there's the reality of their oppression, and then the inside, they got to live and be who they are and write Unfortunately, more freely. sadly, like what she brought up in the story is that we might not ever really know how many, oh, I know we will never know how many, what they actually really wrote or if they actually even had time to actually write something down in their free time because... They were doing other things. They were doing other things, but then they would destroy him mm-hmm. because they didn't want, like, uh, which one was it that they didn't want their father to find it? And so she had to burn or to destroy stuff, like Shakespeare's daughter, right. Shakespeare's sister, that... Um, she would have to destroy it in order to be able to not be punished for it. So we'd never really see what was going on in their, you know, creative minds and what they would have been able to put out there. And what and the world would not have had all of that. What like what does the world not have today because of this kind of systematic patriarchy? A, a heck of a lot of genius. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I just think, and you know, again, goes back to that idea. We we think we've come so far, but really, have we? How do you defend yourself or fight back against this idea then? Yeah, so there's a line in the movie Inception that I always like, and it's called, an idea is the most resilient of parasites. This idea that women writers aren't as good or shouldn't be taken as seriously, is that how do you fight against that kind of parasite just ingrained in your brain? Because so much of this we just take for granted. Well, yeah, of course, blah, blah, blah. How do you fight against that idea that's been around since time began? Because you feel like you're a small fish in a big pond, and so you might have this different opinion, but you can't do anything about it. Right. You know, when I was reading this, it made me think, again, of uh, fate versus free will. Mm -hmm. Like, even though that's their fate, they're born a woman and they couldn't do these things, what is their free will to fight back and go against it? And, And are the ones that finally broke through and found a way, changed their name, used their initials, whatever it took, how much of an impact did that ultimately make and pave the way for others? Right. I'm just curious about that. That just made me think about that a lot. Every little dent in, in the crack, like every little dent in the system. Yeah. Like the, the whole glass ceiling I idea. I was just going to say, that yeah. the glass ceiling, breaking that glass ceiling. It made me think in uh, the movie Booksmart that came out recently, and I was watching that, and one of the characters had a room of one's own on, written on her doorway, and I just thought that's how you... 
that's how you defend yourself against an idea. Yes. I mean, how many young women watching that were like, what's that? Or, did, or didn't even catch it or right. had no idea. And, you the know. subtlety of it. How many people in general at all didn't understand that that's what that was talking about and what that was? I I thought that was really cool. When I saw that, I immediately was like, hey. (laughs) I love that kind of thing. How did female writers fight back or display this conflict? I think you look at somebody like Dorothy Parker, who we're comparing this to, and what she was able to do was use satire to prove this point. So we have almost two realities (laughs) in her work where we have the duality of what the character was saying juxtaposed against what the character was actually thinking. And a lot of times you get that kind of, you know, in-your-face truth through the satire, which is always kind of like a stealth bomb to me. Satire is like I can get my point across, but if I'm doing it through satire, wink, wink, Right. You know, it, it can't be it can't be as harshly judged. Yeah, because I didn't really say yeah, it. Yeah, I didn't really say it. <laughs> so when the characters, for example, when the characters are really super nice to people's faces, then as readers were given this more kind of ugly truth about what they're actually thinking. Like in Horsey. Like in Horsey, which yeah. we'll talk about more extensively. But, you know, is that is that just passive aggressive? But was that kind of passive aggression like an only option or a weapon to use? I think that at the time, it was the only weapon that you could use. They couldn't say that they wrote it themselves, but they couldn't say that, you know, they needed to get that word out. So to be able to use that satire, that hidden sarcasm, got the point across pretty well. Then she was just, you know, if we're talking about Dorothy Parker, she was just accused of just being a drunk. Mm-hmm. But you think about, you know, we'll, we'll go into that with that episode, all of her quotes that, you know, you see around all the time that you don't realize that you know. <laughs> right. So she she right. she was able to penetrate Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. through that, that sarcasm that people don't recognize, which we'll make sure you do recognize. <laughs> so Wolf's, in this book, Wolf's thesis is that women need space metaphorically and physically. How would you define that today? I loved that idea that it's as simple as having a quiet place right. to write and having money not to worry about bills. And metaphorically, too, I think that it's, you know, get society out of your head saying that you can't do this. Mm -hmm. You need your own space and you need to be able to have that, I guess, internal permission to be able to do those things. And so metaphorically that way, but then physically as well, you know, I like that that was her thesis in that. And I really liked how when she was just simply asked to write about women in fiction, this is what she came back with. And it wasn't just, you know, it was so vague. Write about women in fiction. Right, this massive topic. Right, and she could have taken the easy way out and just said, well, there's been many writers of women in (laughs) fiction, and they... (laughs) Like a Wikipedia page? Right, exactly. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, and they've been so instrumental, or whatever. But she took it and really drove home a point, and to the point where you're almost like, wow, this had to have been the longest lecture ever, and, you know... The sad part was, is when did people start to drop off (laughs) if they did, like, listening, but... Hopefully, you know, it, it hasn't because it's still famous today. Important. The other thing I thought was really interesting is that she was 47 years old when she wrote this. So that was really good, too, because you start to think, would a younger Virginia Woolf had written this? Right. Would a 20-year-old, 25-year-old Virginia Woolf have written the same thing? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I just think about us. We have we had that conversation on occasion, who we are now women around that age and how different it is to think about what you might have thought at 20. Oh, right. Even how with much our, you've changed. Right. Even what careers we've had. Back then, we would have been, okay, very by the book and feeling like we had to walk afraid. on toes. Yeah, I walk on eggshells. Really afraid. And, you know, instead of knowing that your ideas and your whole being matters. And so it's okay to speak up and say, mm, no, 
not going to do that or no, this is the way it should go. I wonder if nowadays it feels like a lot of the younger generation of women are now seeing that they are giving that power Empowered. because, yeah, because more and more kind of jumping in together to help pave this way. So hopefully they'd have more of a voice to be able to do that earlier and not wait as long. So is education the sharpest tool to level that playing field? Is that the difference now with women this age that they're they're more educated? Like they have the opportunity more the opportunity to become educated. And do you mean like formally educated, like going to college? Because when I'm looking at that, I think education as far as not just formal education in the college to be able to have those rights and those opportunities, because those have been out there for women for a while. But I would say experiences where they haven't had that education. So there's more to come from the actual experience of being able to be out there and have an influence in those roles and be taken seriously in those roles to make a big impact than a formal education, I don't think is the only way to be able to Oh, for sure, that. not the yeah. only way. Yeah. But I think about my grandmother and when my sister was right ready to go to college, and mind you, my grandmother was living in Ireland, so again, that's a different reality also. Yeah. But she asked my mom, well, why are you bothering to educate your daughter? And that wasn't that long ago. I mean, right, really, right. In, no, in the spectrum of time. Yeah. Lifetime, so, so it was just kind of that expectation. And wow. maybe just that expectation has changed. But that was her societal norms, influences that were... Time. Yeah, that was those voices in her head doing the things that, you know, nowadays I could probably say something to my daughter and then realize that she's like yeah that's not the way it is now right right so it changes tiny by tiny by tiny 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 by the idea you know the the parasite of of the idea yeah has to be changed little by little which it i think it is i think it's doing that and i think that um thank goodness for people like virginia Woolf and dorothy parker to be able to write these things and have them out but it's also important to go back and revisit them and see how far we've come so that that does push that momentum to keep it going because i think there's a lot of people that maybe have never heard of dorothy parker or virginia wolf to even understand but they're what benefiting their message was. yeah but they're benefiting from yes. them right yes mm-hmm. yeah so understand where that came from so that you can see that momentum i think that's really important so even if you haven't read dorothy parker or virginia wolf there are short stories, there's small essays and articles, and mostly probably because of the time period, that's what they were able to sell. So that's what was, right, or maybe what they even had the time to write, but that's what is out there. So it's great because you can pick these up and you can listen to them, you can read them real quickly. You're going to discover out, them. Yeah, you're going to discover things and you don't have to have read them or understood them all. You'll start to really recognize things, just like you recognize Shakespeare and everything, you know. You'll see Shakespeare, if you, when you start reading Shakespeare you start to see Shakespeare everywhere so same thing with these guys which is amazing and awesome all around right that one thing I was reading was that a lot of what they think is a lot of these works that were titled anonymous were probably women so that do you think that like if you think was something we talked a little about before like what have we missed out on but at least those anonymous ones got through yes I wonder now that would be a really fun study to go back and like just pull up all anonymous authors read what they wrote and try to determine it I bet there's that. become some some sort of computer program that would be able <laughs> to determine based on word choice I wonder if that would even be knowable I wonder that would be really yeah. fun to like um, go back and, and 
research that and see if there was anything like that. That would be really cool. Yeah. We'll have to do that. <laughs> In our free time. In our free time. <laughs> you get right on that. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, I, we just want to take a minute and thank all of our listeners. You guys have been fantastic. I can't tell you like how much of an obsession that we both have about checking our numbers and being able to see all the different countries we have listeners from. Yeah, let's just say, I want to say shout out to Africa. Thank you guys for <laughs> listening. We just get so excited that you're there and shoot us a note and say hi to us. And, and Yeah, uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Give some suggestions of what you guys think and what, what would you like to read and what do you, what do you, what are you um, What are you doing with your day? It's so exciting to see New Zealand and Australia, Africa, Australia, Iran, uh, all Egypt. around the United Kingdom, all around. So this has been really exciting and fun to see those numbers. We want to say hi to you guys. <laughs> so, yeah. but you can check us out on our social media, Twitter account at Book Club Juxtas or our Facebook account, Book Club Juxtaposition. You know, if you want to rate and subscribe, that would be fantastic. Wherever you get your podcasts, it really helps us, and we really do appreciate it. Know that know that we see you. We see you. We say hi every day, but now we want to say it verbally so you can hear us. Um, our next episode, we, we've done, been talking about her a little bit here, is Dorothy Parker. And she found a room of her own through her poetry, her satire, her criticism of the dry wit. And I love her dry wit. And once you realize when you're reading Dorothy Parker what hilarious dry wit she has, you can't stop reading Dorothy Parker. But she shows us the truth behind the fake urban mask of political culture. She was fearless, and she was an icon. We'll be focusing on these three Dorothy Parker's works. So if you get an anthology of her work, the three we'll be focusing on is Horsey, The Waltz, and Mrs. Post enlarges on etiquette. And that's going to be posted on April 13th. So thank you so much for spending your time with us. Ciao, Ciao Bellos. Bellos.